In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Respectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today, I really fucking need this podcast. <laughs> yeah, what a frustrating <laughs> episode we have planned. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about abortion. Uh, then we're going to talk about abortion. Yeah. And the uh, then we're going to talk about dinosaurs. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to talk about abortion. Yeah, so the first three segments are going to be about abortion. But then we're going to change <laughs> it up and we'll end the podcast after those three segments. <laughs> <laughs> God. So, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> Speaking of frustrating things to do with health, Michael, mm -hmm. what are the COVID numbers? Very nice. So worldwide, we've hit 515 million COVID cases, which is up from 511 million uh, the week before. So that's 3 million new cases in a week, or about 430,000 new cases per day, pretty much the same level as we saw last week. In terms of death, we've hit 6.27 million, which is up from 6.25 million the week before. So that's about 20,000 new deaths in a week, or about 2.8 thousand deaths per day. Um, in terms of vaccination, worldwide we've hit 67.1% with one dose, which is up from 66.8% last week. So that's just a 0.3% increase, which is even slower than the weeks before. Um, in the U.S., we've hit 83.28 million cases, which is up from 82.82 million cases the week before. So that's 460,000 new cases in a week, or about 66,000 new cases per day, which is actually about double the daily new case rate of the week before. Um, unfortunately, the news is pretty much the same on, uh, on deaths. So we've got 1.021 million deaths, which is up from 1.019 million the week before. So that's about 2,000 new deaths in a week, or about 286 deaths per day, which is, again, about double the daily death rate of the week before. Um, in terms of vaccination, uh, we're up 1% from 77 to 78% of people with one dose last week, and then the percent of people with two doses and a booster are the same as the prior two weeks. So even the COVID news is not trending in the right direction. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you could say it's trending in the right direction. You mean like politically right? Yeah, politically like the, right. The more death direction? Yeah. I'm not <laughs> funny today, bro. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I mean, it's a hard day to be funny, to be honest. Yeah. Speaking of things that aren't funny. Yeah. Let's talk about abortion. Yeah, man. So I think we should, you know, we'll start off in this first segment by talking about the actual, like, Supreme Court uh, leaked opinion. Um, and initially, I just want to, I, I think we should just provide just a quick, like, takeaway summary of of the opinion. Um, and so, so I'll just provide that quick summary right now. Um, we are so fucked. <laughs> Fuck. Fuck, 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 fucked. 
So that's the Any end questions? of our show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the other day I was sitting on the couch watching sitcoms and suddenly I get this news alert on my phone from Politico saying, Hey, you know that 50 year precedent that, uh, that uh, prevents the government from literally going into the doctor's office and um, like getting in the way of women and their doctors. Yeah, the Supreme Court, five people, three of which were appointed by a president who was who did not win the popular vote, are about to completely do away with abortion rights. So yeah, that was a really good news for a Monday night. I have to say. <laughs> so yeah. so the the Supreme Court. Basically, what happened was an, a a copy of an early, a, a first draft majority opinion of the Supreme Court in the case Dobbs v. Mississippi um, was leaked to Politico on Monday night. This opinion, yeah. to be clear, is a draft. However, it is a draft of the minority or the majority opinion. So after they hear oral arguments, they do like a preliminary up down vote and and then they start hashing out the lead, the you know the the person who's writing the opinion starts writing the opinion and generally it's meant to reflect the consensus of the majority of the court this was yeah. initially circulated on february 10th and so you know it it's totally possible that it may have you know been updated in various forms since then um but it basically indicates an intent to do the worst yeah. So there was a lot of speculation that instead of straight up overturning Roe versus Wade, that the conservative Supreme Court would just kind of chip away at aspects of it. Yeah. But no, this is a full overrule yeah. of Roe versus Wade. Yeah. So uh, let's read some specific some specific excerpts from the draft. And this was written by uh, by Justice Alito. Yeah. Um, so, quote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has had a has had damaging consequences. And far from being about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debates and deepened division, which I find that part to be absolutely hilarious and totally fucking irrelevant. That's like yeah. when I saw that, I was like, why do you even, why are you putting this in it? Yeah. That's not your job. <laughs> First off. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're a Supreme court justice, whether or not it's supposed to deepen divisions. That's, that's not what you do. You, you interpret the fucking law. Yeah. Also, what fucking planet do you live on? If you yeah. think that this ruling is going to bring us together. Yeah. Like, seriously. Are you, seriously. You can't be that stupid. Yeah. The thing is, they had so much. It, so at issue in this case was Mississippi's law banning abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. It's a very restrictive law. It's a rollback from, you know, the trimester system, which was kind of established in Roe, basically saying like at the point of viability yeah. that, you know, you can start restricting abortions. Um, but, you know, in this case, like it seemed pretty clear from the reaction to oral arguments and the questioning that like even Roberts, who is the least conservative of the conservative wing of the court, um, was aiming to try to preserve this 15 week ban. 
but not necessarily overturn Wade. Like they had plenty of opportunity to chip away without overturning it. And they instead... Which would still be bad. Which would still be bad. Yeah, absolutely. It would still be bad. We're still restricting abortion like, care. You, you, but you also like kind of what we still, were expecting. Yeah, y'all would still get to be a bunch of evil assholes without being super yeah, evil exactly, assholes. Exactly, exactly. You don't have to be, you know, yeah, like... Yeah. Like chuckling evilly in the corner, you can just be like a normal evil asshole. Yeah. Um, so the big part that um that everybody's talking about that's the probably the most important part is quote we we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. Yeah. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely the due process clause of the 14th amendment that provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the constitution but any such right must be deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty that part's scary yes because what that part means is that other Supreme Court cases that have used the 14th Amendment in order to expand civil rights, civil liberties, and human rights are now in jeopardy, which means that gay marriage is now in jeopardy. Now, the wording of this specific ruling, to its credit, does say that this ruling only applies to abortion, However, the language does establish a scary precedent. And also, we can't fucking trust them. Because during Alito's hearing, he was asked about Roe versus Wade, and he said it's established law. During Neil Gorsuch's uh, hearing, he was asked the same question, and he gave the same answer. Yep. During and Brett said Kavanaugh, that a fetus wasn't a person. That's a really important yeah. bit. During Brett Kavanaugh's hearing, he was asked the same question, and he gave the same answer. And during Amy Coney Barrett's hearing, she was asked that question and she gave the same answer. All of them said, this is established law. Yeah. And they lied. Yeah. They just lied. And obviously they lied. Because yeah. if they didn't lie, they wouldn't have got on the court. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's so true. It's like, not only is the wording in this very, wor like, worrying, um, What's worrying still is that it reflects a judicial philosophy of a growing contingent of the court that was like established like in many ways by Scalia and has been carried on, which is this opinion that that basically, were it taken to its logical conclusion, would roll back essentially the last hundred years of progressive improvement and 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 in laws and like constitutional protections which have been read into the constitution because they like naturally flow from its reasoning and are implied by like the the components of the constitution and the bill of rights see the thing is like the logic that they're employing is in this opinion is basically if it isn't explicitly written in the constitution and if especially if we had laws against it in early american history then it can't possibly be a right. That's essentially the reasoning that Alito is putting forward, which is like, well, two really important things. One, there are plenty of like 
like right the 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 constitution and the bill of rights establish principles and is meant to be a document that develops over time like we don't have time to go into all the history of why that's true but it is like firmly established and agreed upon by historian like honest historians and constitutional like uh uh legal academics and secondly if it can only be a right if it's firmly established in like like early american history which is basically what alito is saying when he when he's saying that like it has to be like deeply ingrained in our history or whatever then things that were logically problematic but concessions at the time uh that certainly wouldn't have followed from like the constitution can't be constitutionally protected things like just equal rights things like you know uh things like separate but equal is not equal like yeah, striking down segregation. segregation like all of those things have to be read into the constitution they have to be they have to be deduced from the constitution because they're not explicitly stated because they were wrong at the time you know like they didn't say these things not because they didn't have the right principles, but because they weren't true to their principles. Yeah. And so the whole point of rights is to protect things later that may or may not have been protected earlier on. Yeah. And then, but he says, all right, so to name this point, he says, nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. Right. And you might say, like, oh, great. Like, we're in a position now where he's, even though his legal reasoning, like would obviously undermine a hundred years of jurisprudence that established some of the most critical rights that we hold dear in the United States, even though his reasoning would lead to that terrible conclusion. It doesn't because he's got this one or two sentences about the fact that it's not supposed to, imp uh, you know, hurt those precedent, that precedent. But <laughs> the thing is that like that, like recognizing that fact, that sentence lays bare the total legal irrelevance of this opinion as it relates to Roe v. Wade and, and Casey. Basically, what he's saying is, I've laid out all this legal reasoning. It doesn't apply to precedents that we like, but it applies to this other thing. Yeah. And, but, yeah. and he's literally saying, he literally said, quote, the abortion right uh, is also critically different from any other right that this court has held to fall within the 14th Amendment's protection of liberty. Rose defenders characterize the abortion right as similar to the rights recognized in past decisions involving matters such as intimate sexual relations, contraception, and marriage. Note there, he's referencing the rights we have read into the Constitution of privacy, which is the ability, like the sacred ability to make decisions about your own private life, right? But I get the quote continues, but abortion is fundamentally different as both Roe and Casey acknowledged because it destroys what those decisions called fetal life and the law now before us describes as an unborn human being. What he's saying is it's different. We can we can outlaw abortion. We can ignore precedent. We can overrule 50 years of established rights in this country because Without citing evidence, abortion is murder. Yeah. Which is just ridiculous. It's wrong. And, it, and, and, like, and, and constitutionally, it's wrong. Yes. Because, yeah. because, I mean, 
this is plain language, but you know what the Fourteenth Amendment also says? People who are born in the United States are U.S. citizens. <laughs> yeah. Not conceived, not carried during pregnancy, yeah. born. The moment you become a person, according to the Constitution, yeah. is when you are born. Yeah, That's what it says. Yeah, That is what it says. So from an originalist standpoint and a textualist standpoint, yeah. you, can't, you can't count them as fully formed human beings. Yeah. So either the legal rationale that you are using to strike this down can be applied to other things, in which case we should be concerned about gay marriage yep. and we should be concerned about, I mean, I'm not saying that I think that they're going to go after segregation next, but like theoretically, yeah, it, if the but logic, it leaves all of those things unprotected. Exactly. Or the legal reasoning behind it does not matter, mm -hmm. in which case the ruling should be irrelevant to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the partially, so, He's trying to do a clever thing in this passage, right? He's trying to reference Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey in their recognition of like what he refers to as fetal life, right? Both like Roe established this like trimester system of determining um, the level of restrictions that a state might employ over abortion throughout the term of the pregnancy, right? Because in Roe v. Casey or in, in Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court was doing something that it routinely and normally does, which is that it evaluates seemingly competing interests in a particular aspect of life. Specifically, it, it is evaluating the interests of um like a person who is pregnant and their rights to like control their body against the interest of the state, which may or may not actually be there, but the interest of the state in like in the like potential or fetal life th that's present. And they they establish that like line when the state's interest actually has any type of, you know, like impact at viability. Because at that point, right, the state like the reasoning is that like at that point, the state is um, able to essentially conclude that this is life that could exist outside of this person's presence in this life. It's not, it's no longer dependent on, on the person carrying the child, right? Whether we think that line, that bright line is a good line or not, what they were doing is establishing is they were balancing, which is balancing interest, which is something the Supreme Court does regularly but because this court of ideologues is totally unable to reason in anything but absolute principles like the right to keep and bear arms must mean that you can own and brandish and bear any any like type of you know gun that you want because they're totally unable to think in anything but absolute principles the presence of this balancing effect to them means that there must not be any interest of the mother present at all because that's what this is if we return if we take if we look at this decision from the normal balancing interest uh like framework that the supreme court would reasonably use in many cases like this they're basically saying that as soon as an egg is fertilized the state has an absolute interest in that life and it overrides any interests of the mother whatsoever there's no protection for for the interest of the pregnant person 
whatsoever, and the state is able to force that person to carry the child to term. That is an incredible extension of the state's interest. Yeah. And I just want to go back to something that Michael alluded to, uh, the trimester system that Roe kind of created, which is, so I think it's important to note that Roe versus Wade is fairly moderate. Yes. Like yeah. it's a fairly moderate ruling. Mm -hmm. One of the things that uh, we'll definitely talk about this more later, but one of the things that Republicans really try to use as a buzzword or a buzz phrase is the idea of late term abortions mm -hmm. or partial birth abortions or whatever. And we'll talk about why that's bullshit a little bit later, but it's important to note that Roe does not uphold that. Yeah. It creates yeah. a trimester system. So under the first trimester, the state cannot have any, like cannot have any regulate regulations or any prohibition on the uh, on the carrier. Yeah. Note the first trimester is only like twelve to thirteen weeks. It's not yeah. that long anyway. Yeah. Um, during the second trimester, the state could regulate but not outlaw abortion in the interest of the mother's health, which already that's fairly open-ended and restrictive. And then it's only the third trimester that I'm like, like after the, after the second trimester, when the fetus becomes viable in theory, um, that the state can regulate or outlaw abortions in the interest of potential life, except when necessary to preserve the life or health of the mother. Mm -hmm. So it leaves open the exception of, you know, it, it, the, the, the life or health of yeah. the mother. You have the right not to be killed by yeah. the child you're carrying. And the thing is, that's like, that right there is usually the only reason why people have abortions late, late term. term. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's almost always because of the, you know, because of the health of the mother, which we'll, we'll again, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But this is a moderate ruling. Yeah. All right. It's it's not just a blanket endorsement of abortion in all cases. Yeah. It is establishing a balance, to Michael's point, between abortion rights for, for, for carriers and the state's ability to to regulate abortion. Yeah. So honestly, I think that some people could even argue that it's too moderate. But yeah. But this is what we've this is what we've been used. This is precedent. Yeah, and that I think that's important. I think to your point, like that's really important. That there should be a very high burden always to removing a right. Yeah. Right. Like it's the Alito went through trying to justify the outright overturning of Roe v. Wade by listing a bunch of cases where. The Supreme Court had similarly in the past overruled a previous ruling that they found to no longer be accurate. They vacated the ruling. Um, but it is exceedingly rare for the court to take a protection and remove it via an overruling. Yeah. Like, they tend to default towards allowing people to protecting people's ability to make choices for themselves. That has been their trend. And this is a stark reversal uh, of that trend. 
Yeah. The other thing we should clarify here is like this does not. So two things. First of all, draft opinion. So currently, abortion is still a protected constitutional right. It's not expected for this opinion or whatever form it ends up taking to be uh, handed down for you know a month or, or or more. But secondly, this decision obviously doesn't make abort abortion illegal. Yeah, it just what it does is it removes the constitutional protection, an absolute you know protection under the system that Nathan laid out for access to abortion without an undue burden. That's what Casey introduced is that they that states can't, you know, implement an undue burden uh in preventing people from getting an abortion. So yeah. so that's what it does. And so the immediate effect of that once this handed decision is handed down is that immediately or very quickly abortion will become essentially inaccessible in about 22 states or so um, with near total bans or early term bans that are either on the books already um, and being held up in various court cases, like in the Texas six week abortion ban, which is currently has the force of law or in the form of trigger laws, which have been set up to implement harsh restrictions or outright bans of abortion. Yeah. The moment that Roe v. Wade is vacated. Yeah. So according to the New York Times, uh, currently 13 states have trigger laws, yeah. uh, which means that they passed laws that specifically said that if Roe was was ever overturned, that they would outlaw abortion within their borders. Um, for a few of the states, Kentucky, Louisiana, Oklahoma, North Dakota, the bans would take effect immediately. Um, Idaho, the, the ban would take effect 30 days afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the other states will require the state attorney, attorney general or the legislature or the, the, the legislative council um, for the ban to become law, which is a, which is a process that could take a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these states do make exceptions to the ban if the life or health of the woman is in danger but many of them do not have exceptions for rape or incest. Um, five states have pre-row abortion bans that could then be affor- enforced again. That includes Wisconsin, Michigan, West Virginia, Alabama, and Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Wis- the Wisconsin and Michigan do have Democratic governors, so it's possible they might be able to get out of that. I, I don't know exactly. Um but it's it's concerning. Yeah. Um, and like Michael said, basically putting everything together, uh, abortion may be banned or tightly restricted in as many as 28 states mm-hmm. in the months and the weeks ahead. Um, yeah. And only 22 states are likely to remain unchanged. Yeah. And I also want to point something else out. Uh there was a law that they had tried to pass in Georgia at one point where it would have basically made it so that not only are abortions banned within the state, but if you had an abortion in another state and went through Georgia, like just drove through Georgia, <laughs> you could be arrested for murder. Jesus. And I have no Christ. doubt that other states are going to try to do that, yeah. which basically means that 
I, I believe the number is like a, a, almost a fourth of women have had abortions yeah, at some point in their 25%. life. Basically, that means that there will be some states where 25% of women just cannot go to. Yeah. Like just if you drive through it, you will be arrested for murder. It's such fucking bullshit. It's crazy. And so Alito argues in the opinion that if if women want access to abortion, he's this is paraphrasing, all they need to do is vote the right people into office. He's basically he's basically saying, you know, well, we're the Supreme Court. We can't protect people's rights. You should protect your rights by voting the right people into office. And, you know, for the via the democratic process, we will uh we will establish people's rights. Um but that of course, completely ignores the special position that rights are meant to have. Yeah. A right is meant to be something that no political majority can take away from you. The point is that when majorities turn to tyranny, certain things remain protected. Yeah. And so he writes, women are not without electoral or political power. The percentage of women who register to vote and cast ballots is consistently higher than the percentage of men who do so. So I would just like to point something. Out. <laughs> so what he's arguing is that we're not a republic. All right. Republic means that we have a rule of law to protect minorities or, you know, potentially uh, uh, potentially marginalized groups from the tyranny of the majority or the tyranny of those in power or the tyranny of the majority opinion. Yeah. All right. So. What he's saying is that we don't live, we don't live in a republic. We live in a democracy. Yeah. But here's the thing: three of the five Supreme Court justices. I, I, I said this earlier. I'll say it again: three of the five Supreme Court justices that are voting to overturn this were appointed by a president who lost the popular vote. They were appointed. By senator, they were approved by senators yeah. who represent a minority of the country mm -hmm. because the Senate is not based on population. So we do not live in a democracy either. No. So my question to Alito would be, if we don't live in a democracy and we don't live in a republic, then what type of nation are you trying to build? So now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, Tips for Good. So, Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Michael, we do Tips for Good every week because don't you dare look back. Just keep your eyes on me. I said you're holding back. She said, shut up and dance with me. Mm. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, that song gets stuck in your head. It does. It's a very good song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a very good song. You know, I got to say, songs that get stuck in your head that like are, are bops like that, I mean, they just they make the world a better place, you know? Oh, that's a good point. Because they get stuck in your head because the song's so good. Then you yeah. feel good. Then you go out and do good in the world. Maybe we should just skip all those intermediate steps and go straight to doing good. Yeah. Maybe that's we an could awesome give, idea. Maybe we could give tips for how to do good. Oh, there we go. Because we have a podcast a and an we audience. We do have a podcast. We'll use that. We'll do it. Okay. So I guess we'll so give a tip for good. Stupid. All right, Nathan, what is so our stupid. tip for good this week? <laughs> Why do we even do that? It's so stupid. 
because we have to distract uh, ourselves. We have to get our I audience's know. attention. By the time they, right. they get out of You're the right. first segment, they're like, oh, I'm just listening to these guys in the background. And then we're like singing a song. And yeah. they're like, well, wait, was that what, Katy Perry? And then what's it's like, funny is that I. Back. I today was my last day of class and I told some of my students about my pod. So this could mm. be the first episode that some of them listening listen to and they're just going to be like, what the hell what is the that? Hell? Yeah, who is this guy? <laughs> so anyways, our tip for good this week is to channel your frustration into something productive. So if you're like me and you're like Michael and you're like, you know, most of the country right now. Yeah, like 54% of the country... <laughs> Uh, you're probably pretty pissed off about the recent decision to uh, by the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade, or at least yeah. the the draft that makes it seem like they're going to. And you might be wondering, what exactly can I do about it? Because it's easy to feel powerless in situations like this. Mm-hmm. And what's nice is that for a lot of you, there might actually be something that you can do that if done collectively could actually make a difference. So right now there is a law that has been proposed in the U S Senate, um, in, in, in Congress, it's called the women's health protection act. And this law would codify the protections of Roe versus Wade into the law, which is what Alito said you should do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that, I'm sure that he would never do anything about that law after he said that there's a legislative prescription because, you know, we know he's honest. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, assuming assuming he is honest and assuming that we can that um, that if we pass that law, uh, it will not be overturned by the Supreme Court. Um, you could potentially be an activist for this law. Now, the biggest hurdle that this law is going to have will be the filibuster in the Senate because the filibuster currently requires you to have 10 people on board. And at this point, I believe the most they will have is 52 Mm -hmm. because I know that uh, Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski are pro-abortion rights. Yeah, but even they have come out about this particular bill and said it goes too far. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know what going too far in protecting women. Anyways, (laughs) yeah, maybe this could force their hand. Yeah, they need contrition for voting for the fucking Supreme Court people that fucking... (laughs) <laughs> the point the Strike point is down. the point is that it won't pass while the filibuster is still in place. Yeah. And there are a lot of senators that have been on the fence regarding the 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 taking away of the filibuster that could potentially be persuaded by something as big as this. And the way that they get persuaded is if you flood their phones yeah. with phone calls. So I actually recently called my senators, which I live in Virginia. So my senators are Tim Kaine and Mark Warner. Both of them are co-sponsors of the Women's Health Protection Act. Um, And both of them have not taken a direct position yet as to whether or not they are for abolishing the filibuster in order to pass it. So if you live in the state of Virginia, you should call both Tim Kaine's and Mark Warner's offices. Um, So... Tim Kaine's office number is 202-224-4024. And Mark Warner's office is 202-224-2023. And 
as soon as as soon as uh, as soon as it picks up, there's going to be like a, a an automatic response. Uh, you're going to want to press two because that'll they'll say press two to talk to a staffer. You're going to want to talk to a staffer, and you're going to want to tell them um, that uh, you're going to want to tell them that the the senators should support getting rid of the filibuster in order to pass the Women's Health Protection Act. And it's very possible that enough pe- if enough people call them that they might have to flip their position. Now, the biggest opponent, the biggest obstacle of this is going to be Joe Manchin. Mm-hmm. So if you live in West Virginia... Oh my God, if you live in West Virginia. If you live in West Virginia, you got to call Joe Manchin's office and tell him that. So his number is 202-224-3954. So call it. Call it every single day, mm-hmm. all right? Tell him that you support abolishing the filibuster in order to pass this specific act, all right? And if we can put enough pressure on enough senators to flip, maybe, maybe we can actually do something. But in the meantime, at least that is something that you can do as an activist in order to channel your anger into something that's productive. And that's tips for good. So for our second topic, as Nathan mentioned at the outset, we're talking about abortion. We're taking a bit of a different angle relative to our first segment. The first segment, we were focused on the Supreme Court, the specifics of the opinion, and all that stuff. For this segment, we're focused on um, arguments for protecting the right of abortion itself. So not, you know, constitutional arguments, not arguments about how Alito is a dumbass, um, but specifically, like, why this is such an important sacred right that we have to protect. Yeah, and not even necessarily about strategy. Just, like, that'll be our third segment. This is just about why abortion is important, why it needs to be maintained, why it needs to be protected. And and one thing that I did want to, you know, obviously mention is that neither Nathan nor I can become pregnant. Yeah. Um, but, and so obviously like we're in to, to a, a high degree speaking from positions of, you know, low relative authority on the yeah. subject, but we are part of the group that has traditionally held the most power to restrict yeah. the lives of people that can become pregnant. As white yeah. dudes, it's our responsibility to talk about these things and to try to echo the voices yeah. of people that can become pregnant so that people yeah. who might only listen to us will listen. Yeah, it is, it is absolutely our responsibility. Uh, oftentimes when we talk about gender issues or sex issues, that's kind of just code for women's issues. But men especially white men need to step up. And I, I, I don't care if you are sitting there thinking, well, this doesn't affect me directly because I don't have a uterus, but in a moral society, if you want to build a moral society, you have to, you have to speak up about this. Yeah. And, so and it listen, probably... listen to people around you, yeah. but, but speak up. And the other thing is like, so I hate these kinds of arguments when, they're made about like about like combating like sexual assault, which is arguments that like that p- 
put that establish people who experience sexual assault as people in relationship to people who don't. Right. It's yeah. like you should yeah. you should care about sexual assault because it could be your mother or your sister or something like that. Um, but like in yeah. in the case of abortions, like it's not just that it could be your mother or your sister. Like if you're a, a dude, it could affect you directly. Like yeah. not only could it be your mother, or your sister, or your girlfriend, or your wife, but like it could literally be the difference between life and death for any of those people. Yeah. And also, even if it's not someone that you know, which, you know, I, I have known people who, um, actually a, a, a good friend of mine from college whose entire academic career was saved because of abortion. Yeah. After an unwanted pregnancy that was caused by rape. Yeah. But regardless we should care because beyond a woman or a, a person with a uterus's relationship to us, to a man, mm -hmm. they are humans and we should care yeah. about humans. Yeah. And 25% of these humans will use yeah. this right at some point in their lives. Yeah. So first we should just like establish right up front the very clear argument about bodily autonomy that is like first and foremost among these arguments. Like there's all kinds of consequentialist arguments about how access to abortion is very important, um, which it is, and we'll talk about those. But fundamentally, it's an argument about the fact that you own your body like, yeah. it doesn't really matter where life starts or whether an unborn or non-viable fetus is, like, a person yet or not. Like, those arguments are really tempting, right? Because it's, it's, we are convinced that it should be couched in terms of murder or not, right? Like, it's like, well, if, how, if you wouldn't kill a person, why would you kill a baby, but it is a distraction from the fact, and it's, it's kind of an unwinnable distraction from the fact that it doesn't really matter if we're talking about a fertilized egg or a fetus or a baby. Like, nobody has the right to use your body against your will even to save their own life or the life of another person. Like... If you're walking down the street and you're walking past like a lake and someone's drowning, you're not forced to save them. Yeah. The fact that there is a being that is totally dependent on you in your body doesn't force you to use your body to sustain that thing. And the viability question, which is established in Roe v. Wade is a useful practical dividing line at which point it can be like, well, we don't have to employ this person's body at this point anymore. And before that point, when we don't need to employ that person's body anymore, it's your body. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think of it this way. Yes. If you donate blood or if you're an organ donor, perhaps 
the decision to do that could mean life for somebody else. Mm -hmm. And if you make that decision, great. Yeah. Good for you. But there are a lot of other factors that are at play when it comes to making that decision. So even just focusing on blood donation, maybe you have an underlying condition that means that you can't give blood or that if you do give blood, it would hurt you. Maybe you're just not in a, like your schedule just doesn't permit it. Is it fair then for the government to, to come to your house and take your blood from you yeah. and force you to do that? Yeah. Maybe it means another person can live, but it's your body. Yeah. All right. So if you make that decision, if you make the decision to, to give that blood, then great for you. But if you don't, that doesn't make you a murderer. That doesn't make you a bad person. It just means that you decided not to do that. Yeah. And the government cannot be in the business of forcing people to give up aspects of their body, even if it means potentially the life of another person. Yeah. And in this case, whether or not life begins at conception is not even, it's not even determined at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Like we, like you know, even even in a situation where we know the person's alive, like like in the terms of, of blood donations, a person has been alive, has has life, is self-aware. Even in that situation, we say, no, the government cannot force you to do that. Yeah. But in a situation where that is actually that is actually in question. Yeah. The government should absolutely not have any authority on that. And the burden is much greater. Yeah. Like it's the difference the between like half an hour greater. at the blood clinic and like yeah. nine months to nine to 10 months of like, yeah, it's like it. Yeah. yeah. I, I think you're totally, we and, don't, we and the don't possibility even, of dying. We don't even require that corpses, dead people submit their organs to save other people's lives. Corpses have more rights to determine what happens with their organs. Yeah. Than pregnant women in a yeah. in a post row era, <laughs> yeah. That's 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 an amazing thing to think about. Like I I I didn't think about it that way. That is, but that's that's absolutely true. Corpses have more rights to bodily autonomy than than pregnant people. <laughs> like, what world are you trying to build here? Yeah. Yeah. And so. Looking at moving past the argument just purely on a moral basis, let's argue it on a sort of uh, results basis. Yeah. So, if you're if you're looking at it from the point of view of someone who is pro life, and I want to kind of steel man just a little bit here, because I will say that I have had conversations with people who are pro life. Mm -hmm. I, I grew up in a very rural area. I grew up around a lot of people that were pro-life. I've had some great conversations with people who are pro-life. And I can I can tell you that most of the people that I have talked to are not malicious. Yeah. They truly, truly do believe in their heart of hearts that this is a human being 
that you are killing. Yeah. That that is what they truly believe in their heart of hearts. And so their objection to abortion is not necessarily to to violate the rights of the person who is pregnant. It's to um it's to it's to protect the life of the fetus. So you know, you, oftentimes the response that you would say that they would give to like the, 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 the idea of my body, my choice is well, but, but baby's body. Sure. You know? It's not so, just your body. So let's, so let's give them the benefit of the doubt for a second. Let's give everyone, let's assume that you truly do have good intentions. If you're pro-life, let's assume that you truly have, do, do, you do have good intentions. You're not malicious. You're not here to just violate the rights of women. You, you truly care about protecting fetuses. Now, you've probably already heard many times that there is no way to completely get rid of abortions because abortions happen whether it's illegal or not. All right? Abortions happen, which means that if you if you understand that, that means that your priority then is to reduce the number of abortions as much as humanly possible. All right? So that, that would be your priority. If again, if you have good intentions, all right? So let's look at some numbers for whether or not the best way of doing that is abortion bans. So first off, let's look at the Guttenmacher Institute uh, that collected a ton of data about unplanned pregnancies and abortion rates throughout the world. And I've actually referenced this before, and I would just like to make a quick correction uh, from the last time that we talked about this. Last time we talked about this, I think that I talked about these numbers as percentages. Um, these numbers are actually not percentages. They're rates in terms of, um, uh, of number of women per 1,000 women. Gotcha. All right, so I do, I, I do want to apologize for that. If, you, if you've heard our past podcast, about this subject, I did make a little bit of a mistake. Um, based on based uh, when I relooked at this, it it looks like what they're saying is not that these are percentages, but rather these are um, ten per one thousand people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, or per one thousand women. So, let's look at uh, global. Let, let's look at abortion rates in countries where abortion is broadly legal versus ones that are more restrictive. So in countries where abortion is broadly legal, um, they tend to have about 41 abortions per, per 1,000 women. All right? So 41 per 1,000. Per now, you would think that if if the purpose of an abortion ban is to prevent abortions you would think that in countries where there are where there are more restrictions on abortion that there would be a less number of abortions thing is there's not so in terms of uh countries in which it is allowed in order to pursue health that number is 36 allowed only to save a woman's life 36 prohibited altogether 39 and i would just like to point out 
that it is extremely possible. Now, the the one the countries, especially where their uh, the abortion is is banned altogether, um, the confidence interval is a little bit higher because it is it's an estimate because it has to be because it's banned. In countries where it's broadly legal, it's a lot easier to find the data. In countries where it's not, there's a larger confidence interval, which basically means that the range could be significantly higher than 39. In fact, it is very likely higher than 39. Now, I would definitely encourage you to, to go on to this Gutenmacher page, which is going to be posted um, in the, uh, in the, on the Patreon um, and, and look at the methodology of how exactly they, they created these estimations. A lot of it's based on surveys. A lot of it's based on pretty much all available data that they could find on women that live in these countries. So you might be asking yourself, why is it that countries that have like less access to abortion or legal abortion have similar levels of abortion? Well, that answer is actually pretty simple because that answer lies in the fact that the number one cause of abortion is unplanned pregnancy. And also, you know, another major cause of abortion is, uh, is poverty. So when you look at unintended pregnancies and abortion rates throughout countries of different income groups, you find that the, uh, that the unintended pregnancy rate among low-income countries is 93. Among high-income countries, 34. But then looking at the abortion rates among high-income countries, 15. Among low-income countries, 38. So income is also a massive part of it. And we're looking at the percentage of unintended pregnancies ended, ending in abortion. And th this, is, this is a percentage. For low-income countries, 40%. For high-income countries, 43%. So, and, and then for kind of uh, mid-income uh, countries, 66%. Hmm. Which, which I think, I think that, that's really interesting. So... What we can take from these numbers is that there are many other factors that go into determining how likely an, uh, how likely it is for an abortion to happen. And just blanket bans don't prevent them. Yeah. Yeah, and the thing is, like, not only is it not a particularly effective way to prevent abortions. It's also the riskiest way to prevent yeah. abortions. So, so if we look at like the pre row era, so limitations, um, like, like these severe bans limitations put women in really desperate situations, um, where they'll all often attempt abortions via unsafe methods. So we, if we think about, um, like the pre versus post row years in 1973 um, when the United States legalized abortion, that was row uh, pregnancy related deaths and hospitalizations 
due to complications of unsafe abortions uh, reduced significantly. So in, um, so in 1970, right, before Roe, abortion-related deaths uh, were at 40 deaths per 1 million live births. Um, that fell by 1976, just three years after Roe, to eight deaths per 1 million births. So from 40 deaths per 1 million live births to eight deaths per 1 million live births. And after 1975, mortality due to legally induced abortions fell from three deaths per 100,000 to one death per 100,000 abortions. Yeah. So like it's much safer when we do have abortions, we do have people that are seeking to terminate a pregnancy to allow them to have access as opposed to using these unsafe methods. Yeah. And one of the things that's important to note is that when we look at the abortion rates in the United States, we do also have to look at those because uh, the, the official numbers that we can look at from the United States, um, they are not necessarily accurate because they're only officially reported ones, mm -hmm. which means that it is very possible that there are that in states that have like one abortion clinic, there are likely many abortions that go unreported mm -hmm. yeah. that were done just at home. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing is when we, you know, you can, you can point the, to the official numbers from the United States mm -hmm. and, and you can look at the fact that um, states that have, uh, that have more restrictions on abortion yeah. and, and for that matter, states that have less, abortion clinics do have lower rates of abortion per yeah. state. However, you also have to take that official number with a grain of salt mm -hmm. because I mean, you don't necessarily know how many of them are unreported. Yeah. And that's, that's the scary part. And the thing is what you want to try to go off of is you want to try to go off of sort of a general number, a general percentage of pregnancies that end in abortion, mm -hmm. which I mean, according to the, so the, from the Guttenmacher Institute, um, that number that I read earlier about how, uh, 43% of high in, in among high income countries, 43% of unintended pregnancies end in abortion. Now uh, that might not necessarily be the perfect number to apply to the United States, but it is definitely a theoretical number that could be applied to the United States. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Because we're talking about high income countries generally in the world. Yeah. Which means that you would want to apply that number to states that have higher, uh, higher unplanned pre pregnancy rates. And among the states that have higher unplanned pregnancy rates, Mississippi, mm -hmm. Florida, Louisiana, Alabama, Tennessee. Yeah. Those are the top five. Yep. All right. Now, Mississippi, in Mississippi, 47.1% um, of pregnancies are unplanned. <laughs> now, think about, think about that percentage and apply that 43% that to that number. And it is, it is extremely possible that you have a significant number of unsafe abortions 
that happen in Mississippi that just go unreported. Yeah. And if you overturn Roe, that number only goes higher. Yeah. And not to mention, you know, it's very possible that there are plenty of people in Mississippi that might have gotten pregnant and then gone to another state to get an abortion. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right? Yeah. That, that's also possible, which means that you're still not necessarily reducing the numbers of abortions. Yeah, exactly. And the, the thing is, like, to your point, um, abortion restrictions uh, are inversely correlated, right, with health outcomes. So the more yeah. abortion restrictions you have, the worse the health outcomes. So yeah. the Center for Reproductive Rights conducted a study where they scored each of the states based on how many abortion restrictions they had. And they compared that to um, maternal mortality in the states to get a sense uh, while, you know, while accounting for the fact that there might be over underreported official numbers of abortions and, and things like that to get a sense of the relationship between the two accounting for like, you know, the many variables that go into it. Um, and they found that relationship was very strong. So in, in one example, like South Carolina, which had 14 different abortion restrictions, um, which is as many as, as many as the highest count in, in the study, um, had the, South Carolina had the worst health outcomes for women, um, for pregnant women in, in the country. So in 2015, one third of South Carolina had no dedicated health care provider, plus maternal mortality rates had risen 300% since 2010 when the study, when the study started looking at it. And in Texas, the rate of maternal deaths rose from 72 deaths per 100,000 births in 2010 to 148 deaths per 100,000 births in 2012 as yeah. they as they rolled out a like a growing number of abortion limitations and they reduced funding for um, Planned Parenthood and other clinical services. Yeah. And that's that's another important point to bring up. Because when you're looking at the top five states with the most unplanned pregnancies, they have a few things in common. Mm -hmm. Number one, four of the five are abstinence-only states. Yep. Um, They have, they also have higher rates of, they also tend to have higher rates of poverty. Mm -hmm. So we talked about how Mississippi had the highest unplanned pregnancy rate. Yeah. They also have the highest poverty rate in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and another thing that they have in common, to Michael's point, less planned parenthoods. Mm-hmm. Less planned parenthoods. So the things that prevent, the thing that prevents abortion is preventing unplanned pregnancy. Yeah. The thing that prevents unplanned pregnancy is comprehensive access to contraception, funding of Planned Parenthood, which to a lot of people might seem counterintuitive since they're also the largest abortion providers, Mm -hmm. but they're also the largest providers of the things that prevent the need for abortion in the first place. So if you fund Planned Parenthood, you reduce the number of abortions and also poverty. So another huge aspect to this has to be the safety net. 
if you truly do want to reduce the number of abortion, you need to t uh, numbers of abortion, you need to target poverty. Yeah. Which means that you have to have paid family leave, paid paternal and maternal leave. Yeah. You need to have universal health care. Mm -hmm. You need to have fuck a universal basic income would be huge in preventing abortion. Yeah. Because people could actually afford children. Yep. Protecting SNAP benefits would be huge. Yeah. So, look, if you are a single-issue voter who cares about preventing abortion, this is how you prevent abortion. Yeah. Basically, all of these economically progressive policies, mm -hmm. those are how you redu reduce abortion. Yeah. So if that is the issue that you care about, if, if it's not about, if it's not about controlling the bodies of women or controlling the sexuality of women, if that is not what it's about, and I truly, based on people I've talked to, I truly do believe in their heart of hearts that for a lot of them, that is not what it's about. Yeah. There are better ways of doing it than flat out banning abortion. Yeah. I and I think that's a, an incredibly important pillar to the argument for abortion or for you know defending the right of abortion, which is that other methods are way more effective and way safer. Yeah. I think the other side, you know, the other the next pillar is like and it kind of dovetails nicely with your last point is the fact that it has to be a choice for people to give birth. Right? It, like it's too like the experience of pregnancy, of giving birth and especially of raising a child is too challenging. It's too adverse of an experience not to be, especially for the people that receive abortions the most. So statistically, those who receive abortions the most like in the United States are more likely to be unmarried, to be in their 20s, to have low incomes, to already have a child, and they're disproportionately likely to be black. Yeah. Right? And so all of these things mean that restricting access to abortion harms many of the people, many of the groups in our society that can least afford to have that restriction and they can least yeah. afford to work or to circumvent that restriction by traveling to other states and doing those things. So it is, it, it means that we're going to put these people um, in positions where they have almost no choice, but to like seek out, you know, illegal, unsafe care. And that means that these will be the groups that suffer at disproportional rates from abortion restrictions. This will be yet another killer of the least well-off in our society. Yeah. A recent study found that banning abortion in the U.S. would lead to an estimated 21% increase in pregnancy-related deaths overall and a 33% increase among black women and partially that's just because being pregnant in the united states is very dangerous i mean not relative to like going skydiving but like relative to being pregnant elsewhere as of 2018 looking at a study of developed nations new zealand norway netherlands germany switzerland sweden australia the uk canada france and the u.s 
the U.S. has the highest rate of maternal mortality. 17.4 pregnancy-related deaths per 100,000 pregnancies, which is nearly double the rate of the next uh, highest nation and 10 times the rate of New Zealand, which has the lowest uh, mortality rate. It costs $10,000 to give birth in the United States with no complications. Thir estimated on average $30,000 when you factor in pre-birth like preparation and care. Which means that it would be it's financially ruinous just to give birth to a child even if you were to put that child up for adoption, which means that in a country where 40% of households can't afford a $400 unexpected expense, a $30,000 pregnancy would be devastating for life. And that means that carrying a child to term and putting it up for adoption is simply not a viable option in our current yeah. system raising a child if you were to if as, as is often the case like once you give birth you know sometimes these sometimes people who would have terminated their pregnancy go on to raise their children and studies find that like you know this can go many different directions but that raising a child on average through 17 years old costs two hundred and thirty three thousand dollars $14,000 per year, an unimaginable burden for the people who are most commonly seeking ab abortions, who are the people who can least afford to take on these, these challenges. Like, it has to be the right of a person to decide the path of their own life by deciding whether to give birth or not. It's it's just not something that in any way is feasible for us to, like, not a right that a choice that in any way is feasible to be removed from that person's sole authority. And the final gut punch point that I want to make before we end, just to reinforce the point that I made earlier about family planning services. So, in two thousand fourteen, the Guttmacher Institute estimated that. Um, the United States rates of unplanned pregnancy resulting in births and abortions for 2014 without publicly funded family planning services would have been 68% higher and it would have resulted in 2 million more unintended pregnancies which would have yielded 700,000 abortions. Yeah. In just the year 2014, family planning services from public funds prevented 700,000 abortions. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, a Dershowitz bag. So Nathan, how did we come up with a Dershowitz bag? Well, we came up with the Dershowitz Bag Award to give to to give to people that just made arguments that were so beautifully stupid and self-defeating that we just had to give them credit for it. And of course, it, it goes back 
to that infamous argument by Alan Dershowitz, where he boldly proclaimed that the reason why we cannot impeach Donald Trump is because he believed that it was in the country's best interest for him to win the election. Therefore, it was okay for him to cheat. <laughs> <laughs> that gets me every time. That's amazing. That's so good. <laughs> like we we I I read that argument. We just like we just we have to honor it. Yeah. It's so, so beautifully stupid. So who then could possibly live up to the title of a Dershowitz bag? Well, keeping with the same theme of it's all about abortion, baby. Um, we're gonna. Oh well, abortion baby. Yeah, I was about to say that. <laughs> that was that was not on purpose. Um, it's all about abortion, Dershowitz... no baby. <laughs> uh, our our Dershowitz bag award this week goes to Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Oh man, Mitchie Khan, come on down. I can't. I I don't remember if he's been a Dershowitz bag before. I can't. Uh, he he's has been to. an asshat. I, well, he's, he's been, been an asshat, asshat a lot, but like I feel like. He's got to be a Dershowitz bag. He just is constantly slinging hypocritical shit all over the place. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. I, I mean, I'm almost wondering if it's giving him too much credit to give him a Dershowitz bag because that implies that he believes a single word that he says. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, if we held that that bar, yeah, I don't think a lot of people would make it on that our is, show. That is a good point. Yeah, that is a good point. Most of them are ingenuine fucks. So, what did McConnell say? Uh, what what argument did he make that was so self defeating? So, uh, as you as you might have heard, um, there is a little bit of controversy regarding the Supreme Court right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the Democratic reaction to it has been um, a little bit scathing, controversial. You know, <laughs> yeah. A lot of us are a lot of Democrats are really mad. Yeah. Um. So, Mitch McConnell condemned. Condemns the uh, the reactions by Democrats. He said, quote, By every indication, this was yet another escalation in the radical left's ongoing campaign to bully and intimidate federal judges and substitute mob rule for the rule of law. He And he also added a condemnation of Biden and other Democrats for failing to stand up for the independence of of the high court. <laughs> Amazing. So, Michael, why is that so funny? Well, there's a couple reasons. We'll start with the last one, which is that throughout the Trump presidency, confirmed by record rates, uh, you know, at record rates by McConnell's um, uh, Senate, they installed a bunch of many unqualified shills in place of federal judiciary including three uh supreme court nominees two of whom were pretty much not very qualified and many federal judges uh who were rated as not qualified by the american bar association so the fact that he's criticizing biden for being upset about the independence of the judiciary uh when all they did was select their their uh favorite uh like Trump devotees from the Federalist Society menu of of picks. That's pretty fucking funny. Yeah. It's like he went to their house. He took a shit on their welcome mat. And then when they walked out the door in the morning and walked through his shit, he was like, ah, 
You're stopped in my shit. <laughs> you compromised the independence of my shit. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. So I wonder I, I wonder if he's talking about like the leak. Like I wonder if he's trying to blame the leak of the opinion from the Supreme Court on yeah. Democrats. You know, it must really, really suck for your privacy to be violated. Hmm. I wonder, how must that feel? <laughs> well, we don't know because we're the most privileged group in society. But, <laughs> <True>. <laughs> but uh, seriously, I do wonder. Yeah, I do wonder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. But the, th- the other thing is like, there's no, it's not necessarily obvious that this was a Democrat that released this opinion. In fact, no. a, a, a number of arguments that I've seen have been like, well, this probably cements votes for the... Uh, for the majority opinion that may or may not have wavered and may or may not have weakened the opinion. Like, if anything, yeah. this might have been an attempt by Republicans to try to cement the opinion of the court and in its most radical form. But either way, <laughs> like, it's hilarious that McConnell is trying to lecture Democrats about the independence yeah. of the court and use, and like, mob rule and all that bullshit. Like, we're literally out here protesting. We're literally trying to get our Congress to do things that they may have the power to do and or they definitely have the power to do and may be able to actually accomplish. We're literally just trying to influence the political process using legal means like. Yeah. Yeah. The the first thing that I thought when this ruling came out was basically just. I mean. The Democrats need to start saying radical right yeah. more often. Yeah. Because what is this ruling if not radical right? Radical, yeah. Yeah, like, absolutely. Like, and the idea that people who are upset about the fact that they are taking rights away from half of the population are just dismissed as radical leftists. I mean, it's just laughable. Yeah. Seriously, I, I gotta tell you, not a huge fan of Mitch McConnell. <laughs> There's another attempt by the radical left to enshrine the rights of the Constitution in our laws. <laughs> <laughs> so congratulations to Mitch McConnell for being our d bag. So for our last segment, we're gonna be talking about abortion. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, yeah. Surprise, surprise. But what, did something happen? We're specifically trying to talk about. Um, all right, we're in this position where the Supreme Court is trying to strike down constitutional protection for abortion. What now? What can be done? What are the strategies that we need to employ? So, to me, one of the areas where I think I feel like Democrats have been on the back foot in the abortion debate for a long time is just like. I, I like the rhetoric and our our argumentation. Like I feel like Democrats have just unnecessarily ceded ground left and right in like the abortion debate. Like we just like implicitly accept the fact that, you know, life when life begins really matters to the abortion debate. And we implicitly just accept the idea that like um you know, like restrictions, like 
probably make sense depending on your opinion. And, and like, we like uh, fail to combat like implications that abortion is somehow murder. And like, we accept the mantle of like pro choice as opposed to like what it really is, which is like, or, or like, you know, we allow Republicans to ex- like be, be call themselves like pro life instead of pointing out the fact that they are like pro force, like pro forced birth, you know? And so like, I feel like we've just like, you know, given up so much ground in just the way we talk about this issue. Yeah. So here's the thing about that though, Michael. It often feels like we've lost the rhetorical battle on abortion because shit like this keeps happening. Yeah. All right. You keep seeing legislatures restrict abortion. You keep seeing the court restrict abortion. So it's easy to think at this point that if we just started making the right arguments for abortion, which, and, and I think we are making the right arguments. I think that our, our last segment, I think we made some good arguments, if mm. I do say so myself. <laughs> but it's easy to look at that and say, well, if we just started making the right arguments about abortion, then we could protect abortion. Yeah, like a high-minded, like, if we can convince people that we're right, that will, you know, actually influence our laws. You know, yeah. like what our country is supposed to be founded on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But here's the thing. We've already done that. Hmm. So according to a Pew Research Center poll, um, and, and you know, I'll, it's possible that this number could shift, potentially even increase, um, considering that this poll was taken in May of 2021. And uh, that obviously that's before the, uh, the current ruling. But according to this poll, 59% of Americans say that abortion should be legal in all or most cases, hmm. while 39% say it should be legal or sh- say it should be illegal in all or most cases. Hmm. And the number of people that think it should be illegal in all cases is 13% of the population. Wow. Hmm. 13%. So 59% is an overwhelming majority. Yeah. So at this point, the political strategy is not necessarily to convince pro-lifers to be on our side. And as much as I, I hate to say that, because I want to convince everybody <laughs> that we are correct. And, and look, the reason why, even though I'm saying this, we still made sure to to lay out all of the arguments in favor of abortion is because we need to keep ourselves intellectually honest. We need to make sure that we're still making good arguments. Even if they fall on deaf ears, we're still making good arguments. Mm -hmm. But the strategy, the political strategy is not to target the people that disagree with us. It's to target the people that agree with us. Hmm. It's to target the people that agree that abortion should be legal, that it should be protected, that Roe versus Wade should be protected. It's to target those people and get them active, Hmm. get them voting, get them thinking about abortion when they get out there and vote. That is the strategy. 
And, and here's an important reason why that needs to be the strategy. Because let's look at the Republican strategy. And if done correctly, this strategy could be a very strong strategy. So, so Rick Scott, who is the current chair of the Re Republican uh, National Senatorial Committee, um, in response to in the response to what's going on in uh, you know with the Supreme Court, said, "quote I think clearly the country is not where Democrats are. The Democrats want late-term abortion. They won't be able to get on board until the moment of birth." and then not have to keep the child alive. That's not where the country is. Public opinion doesn't believe in late-term abortion. That's where the Democrats are. So what he just tried to do there, which is actually a brilliant strategy, um, what he just tried to do there is, uh, according to that Pew Research Center poll that I read for you, mm -hmm. Uh, twenty-five percent of adults say that it should be illegal or should be legal in all cases. All right, and then thirty-four percent say that it should be legal in most cases. So what he's trying to say is that it should be that seventy-three percent of Americans versus that twenty-five percent of Americans. That's that's how he's trying to frame hmm. this. All right. Gotcha. When in reality. When you look at what Roe actually says, what Roe actually says is most cases. Yeah. All right. It very definitively says most cases. So hmm. the defending of Roe versus Wade, which is the Democratic position, is completely in line with that 59%. Yeah. And it's important to point that out. It's also important because the big thing that the Republicans are going to keep saying over and over again is, is going to be, well, Democrats want abortion up to birth. All right. Democrats want abortion up to the point of birth. And so if you elect Democrats, there's going to be late term abortions. There's just going to be partial birth abortions, but let's look at the actual numbers. All right. Let's look at the actual numbers. So according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, 91% of abortions, 91% of abortions occur within the first 13 weeks of gestational age. Hmm. 91%. From 14 to 20 weeks of gestational age, 8%. 21 weeks of gestational age, which is what they refer to as late-term abortion, which, by the way, is not a scientific word. Yeah. It's a political word. Yeah. All right. A lot of clinicians actually despise that word because, number one, it makes it seem like all like all fetuses develop the exact same way, which is just not true. Mm -hmm. uh, it tries to create a universal standard of viability, which is just not how it works. Um, 1%. All right. 1%. So they're trying to make it seem like that 1% of the time that this happens, that that is a representative of the entire Democratic platform. And you cannot let them do that. So here's what you need to do. All right. When they bring up, uh, when they bring up like late term abortions, because, you know, keep in mind, this is about convincing the people that are with us. 
right? Yeah. The people that say, well, I believe in abortion in most cases uh, or potentially all cases. This is about convincing them to stay with us. Mm -hmm. All right. This is about convincing them to be active with us. Yeah. All right. The way that you do that is you point out the fact that what causes late term abortion. I mean, let, let's let's look at a few things that that cause late term abortion. First off, the obvious thing is health risk to the pregnant person. Yeah. All right. Obvious thing, which, by the way, it's mostly even among Republicans, yeah. it's fairly controversial to say that you don't support abortion, even in cases of of like a risk to the pregnant person. Mm. All right. So that absolutely falls into that category. All right. Um, fetal anomalies. All right. Meaning that maybe they, they wouldn't survive anyway. Yeah. Among non-medical reasons. All right. About half of individuals who obtained an abortion after 20 weeks did not suspect they were pregnant until later in the pregnancy. Hmm. And this, again, this is according to Kaiser Family Foundation. And this is really important. Other barriers to care included lack of information where to access abortion, yeah. transportation difficulties, lack of insurance companies, and inability to pay for the procedure. Once again. That is essential. Once again, solving the barriers to abortions is what reduces abortions. Yeah. Well, <laughs> not just that. Abortions. Yeah, yeah. Solving the barriers to abortions prevents late-term abortions. So if you are somebody who is for uh, abortions in most cases, which is a plurality of the country. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you know, it's a majority of the country that supports it in all or most cases. The argument that you need to be making, the argument that you need to understand is even if we concede the idea of late-term abortions, which again, only happens 1% of the time, the causes of that are health risks to the mother, which we already agree on. Which we already agree on. Potentially the, the fetus isn't going to survive anyway, which again, we already agree on. Or they didn't have access to an abortion. They didn't have transportation. They didn't have the funding for it. Yep. So if you actually care, if, if late-term abortions are a priority for you, then the way that you prevent that is make sure that not only do people have physical access to abortions, which means that there are more abortion clinics in the state. They have financial access to it, yeah. which means if you use public funding to fund abortions, if you use that, you prevent the number of late-term abortions. You prevent late-term abortions, if that is your priority. That is the argument we need to be making. That is the strategy. Mm -hmm. We have to use that in midterms because... If Rick Scott's version of that narrative ends up being the dominant narrative, we are fucked. Yeah. All right? Yeah. Right now, our saving grace is the fact that a majority of the country is already with us. Mm -hmm. We have to be smart about how we argue this. And also, we have to actually be active, which means that we have to pass the Women's Health Protection Act. We have to abolish the filibuster. And if the filibuster is not going to be abolished because of Joe Manchin or Kirsten Sinema, there, are, there is potential for Democratic pickups in the Senate, which I'm sure that we'll talk about a little bit later. There is potential for Democratic pickups in the Senate that could overrule 
the, the grip that they have on the Democratic Party, which means that if the Democrats want to actually do well in the midterms, especially in the Senate, they need to basically make it a either you're for us or against us. All right. Hmm. If 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 Kirsten Cinema and and Joe Manchin are not with us on this, if they're going to be barriers to this, the entire strategy needs to be we are running against the Republican Party and we're running against them. Yeah. All right. They're the enemies. Yeah. And the only way that you can defeat them is if you elect pro-choice Democrats. All right. That is the only way you can defeat them. And honestly, that could be the only saving grace mm. that the Democrats have for the midterms. Because if it is a referendum on Joe Biden, they are fucked. Yeah. And the last thing that I want to say about this is, so when I first heard about this, my initial reaction was, God damn it, Joe Biden. It's Joe Biden's fault. Fuck Joe Biden. You know, because because he, uh, like, you know, he, he was supposed to expand the court. Mm-hmm. Like, or he should have expanded the court to prevent this from happening. He didn't expand the court. Um, or he was supposed to be harder on Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. He didn't do that. So, like, my, my immediate thought was, oh, it's the establishment Democrats. And then I started seeing a bunch of people, like, on Twitter saying, like, oh, well, all those Bernie supporters that voted for Hillary, this is their fault. This is their fault. <laughs> and I kind of realized something. Look, in a lot of cases, we disagree with the general consensus among elected Democrats. And in those specific cases, we fight them hard. Yeah. All right. We call them out. We call them corrupt on the issues that they're corrupt on. We call them wrong on the issues that they're wrong on. And we, we cannot stop doing that. But this is one of those issues that progressive Democrats, like establishment Democrats, moderate Democrats, even many conservative Democrats actually agree on. Mm-hmm. So if there was ever an issue to unite on, it's this one. Yeah. If there was ever a time for like people like myself who are usually very critical of the Democratic Party, if there's ever a time for us to unite around an issue, this is it. And as much as I hate that there are a lot of other issues that are going to be put on hold because of this, it goes back to what we talked about last week on the pod. Just because they're holding hostages, just because they're trying to distract us, doesn't mean that we don't care about the hostages. Yeah, and we still, you know, it, it, we still need to do everything we can to prevent this because this could be the most significant issue of our time and the significant, the most significant piece of regression in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. And we have to do everything we can to prevent it. And if we can't prevent it, We need to fix it. All right. And now we will end our show as we usually do on some highlights. So Nathan, what are your highlights this week? My highlight this week is that this week it was the, uh, it was my last, it's my last regular week of school. Mm. And I always, I always end it with some type of, you know, message to the students rousing speech like the one from dead poet society (laughs) (laughs) yeah so something like that oh captain Um, my captain (laughs) and you know it's always sad to see them go but i've just i've had a lot of students come up to me and say really nice things about their class my class how they really liked my class i actually had two students write me cards which was really wow that's retro Um, 
And I also had several students that right after I finished class, I, I, I told them about the pod mm-hmm. and they seemed really excited to, to potentially, uh, to potentially listen to it. That's awesome. Um, so first off, if, uh, if you're one of my students and you're listening, uh, shout out. Yeah. Welcome. Uh, I really enjoyed having you and, um, you know, hope that, hope you like the show. That's awesome, dude. That is awesome. What about you, Mike? What's your highlight? I have no idea. I <laughs> <laughs> no. I think it was this past weekend. I'm trying to remember what I did. We we went for a motorcycle ride. We went for a hike. Uh, oh, and I got. Oh man, this is. I think this is my highlight actually. So, um, a while ago, I got an award at work, which came with a little bit of money. Um, and I haven't figured out what I want to spend the money on, and I realized that recently that. Um, you know, Brie and I like to watch movies, we like to watch TV, but our sound system is terrible. So we went ahead and got like some surround sound with that award money and it's fucking awesome. We watched <laughs> Fast and the Furious last night oh, and it God. was so cool. It like which, is what, so much better. One? The first one. I had never first, seen it. Nice. I've never nice. seen the Fast and the Furious movies. It turns out. Um, you've never seen them. I think I've seen random ones like, you know, <laughs> but never the full series or anything. And so, like, now, like, it sounds so good. We can actually hear when people talk. And it, like, has made the movie-watching experience so much better. So you're going to have to come over. I got friends. (laughs) I got family. (laughs) You're going to have to come over and uh, watch movies sometime. I I would love to. Awesome. And now we will thank our amazing patrons. So thank you to Tobias Jansen, Fade Out Scoop, Kyle Chaska, Taylor Bloom, and Jerry DeViller. And thank you so much, listener, for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week.